Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Nightlight, everybody. Thanks for spending your evening with us. We really appreciate it. And then if you have uh, <clears throat> any questions about that amazing announcer, that was Ken Quiethawk, and you can find him at nativestorytellers.com. He and his wife are phenomenal storytellers. And what they offer us is a peek into history and let us know how history was recorded before the textbooks came about and how it has is a way of reminding us of where we've come from and the amazing way of telling stories that uh, and, and history that has been forgotten that maybe should be remembered because history books are not always as accurate as one would like. Mark has an amazing guest tonight, and I am very excited about it because uh, it's a topic that I have often played with, researched, and it's kind of nice to have someone on the show that can get it. We can get it straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Not that he's a horse, of course, but Mark is uh, is going to help to enlighten us on a topic that has been of interest to me, especially for a very, very long time. So, without further ado, Mark, how are you doing tonight? I'm exhausted, and. Uh... <laughs> Every tractor supply and hardware store in the area getting uh, like traps and cages. There's a you know, bait blocks to keep Jeff away from the show tonight. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> yeah, th- things got a little screwed up last week, but uh, yeah, uh, um, yeah, we're we should be able to complete the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this week Yeah, no talking um, mongooses tonight Yeah <laughs> And uh, ta- Talking moms uh, But that's that's another story uh, yeah. Probably uh, how, How's everything with you? Going well, going very well Okay, good Okay, so might as well Get started and maximize our time with our guest. Absolutely. Um, yeah. We're, uh, for tonight's show, we're 
returning to our outlaw roots. Um, I've been outcast a lot. Uh, but I found refuge at Nightlight, uh, as long as I don't do a cooking show. But, uh, you know, we still get a our weekly NSA file on us. But uh, uh, our guest has been busy with some of the big shows, but uh, his our guest on the day his book actually becomes available. So you, you can order it from Inner Traditions after the show. Uh, don't do it during the show. You don't want to miss any of this. Um, but you know, some of our guests have made uh, history, you know, like Merle Fankhauser. Uh, he was a pioneer of the surf rock genre. Scott Walter investigates um, mysteries of uh, places where you know, events happened. Uh, but our I guess Dan Duke is a descendant of a historical person that we've all heard of. Um, Dan is the great-great-grandson of Jesse James. Uh, we will have a reevaluation of his life uh, over the next couple hours. And Dan just published his book, Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, fine. Just, uh, you know, re- you know, Barbara and I have really been looking forward to this show for a few months now. But, uh, you know, we're just really excited. And, and you know, this uh, fits, fits in perfectly with uh, several of our shows. Uh, you know, uh, we'll be you know, uh, working in uh, you know, we just had Bill Mann uh, a couple weeks ago, and you know we are working in his r- review of y- your book as well at, over uh, the evening. But um, you know, I'm f- far from an authority on the Wild West, but my original impression of Jesse James uh, came. From you know when I was you know yeah you know, kid, kid coming home from school and watching the Brady Bunch and there was that episode about you know, it was like you know, it was like Bobby or someone was being taught about the bad people and you know the this old guy actor was uh, you know, discussing his you know grandfather was gunned down by Jesse James. Um, so was this Brady Bunch episode a misrepresentation of uh, your, your family member or an accurate portrayal that I, he, he was like an American Caligula, like a you know, yeah. psych, psychopath? Uh, you know, <coughs> yeah, we need to ha- have maybe a better understanding of who Jesse James was. I remember that episode, and uh, yeah, it was. I laugh about it now. I remember when I was a kid. I thought, you know, I, it, I was kind of mad when I first heard that. Uh, but no, he he was he was misrepresented. He wasn't a psychopath like some people claim. Um, for for whatever reason, there are people out there who who like to brand you know historical figures with certain labels, and it's easy to to do that with an outlaw. And he was far from a psychopath. 
Uh, I believe if if he had Andy wasn't a you know a bloodthirsty killer, those type of people don't usually get by with things as long as as he did. He was very intelligent. He kept a he lived a low key life, low profile. Um, he had a close knit group of friends and family, and he didn't go outside. I mean, it, it, in those days, especially when you're one of the most wanted men in the country, it you know you have to have to live that way if you want to live. Hmm. So, um, and maybe I need to just stick with watching the X Files then for <laughs> a better understanding of history. But yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, Let's take a look at you know, in your book, Jesse James and the um, Lost Templar uh, Treasure. Now you do give us a, a biography of uh, J- Jesse. How, how did he grow up? You know, where where did he grow up? You know, what, uh, what's the uh, time period? Okay, he was he he grew up well. During this, when at the start of the Civil War, he was just a, he was just entering his teenage years, um, but the fighting had begun in Missouri and Kansas, long before, about a decade before the Civil War actually started. A lot of people say that the Civil War started, in you know that that was the beginnings of it of the fighting in on the uh, Missouri Kansas border, and. Uh, you know, it was it back then. It was the frontier. Um, Kansas, Kansas guerrillas would raid into Missouri, and then Missouri guerrillas would, you know, ride back and, and raid them. You know, it was just back and forth for years, and the fighting just grew more intense and more brutal. Where uh, at the beginning of the Civil War, Frank had joined Frank, who was Jesse's older brother, Frank James. He joined the, the legitimate Confederate army. Uh, Jesse was too young. He, w- he stayed at home. He was plowing his fields one day, and a group of uh, Union guerrillas, Union-backed guerrillas, rode onto the farm, strapped Jesse to a plow, and brutally beat him. And um, after they were done beating Jesse, they rode onto the farmhouse, pushed his pregnant mother around, uh, whipped her, and hung his stepfather from a, from a tree. But it didn't kill the stepfather, but it did cause brain damage. Um, So you can see why, you know, especially a 14-year-old boy just got brutally beaten by people who attacked him unprovoked. So, you know, he wanted revenge. He couldn't join the legitimate Confederate Army, but he found a group who would let him ride, and that was Quantrill's guerrillas. And during the war, uh, Quantrill's guerrillas were very good at killing. Uh, They killed... They, 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 in battles, they would kill huge numbers of their enemy, and maybe one of them would get wounded or killed. Um, they were, they were just, and people were were scared to death of them. They, they had a brutal reputation. They were good at what they did, and Jesse was one of the best at, you know, one of the the mo- the uh, deadliest guerrillas. So that gives you an idea of how deadly he was. Um, during, you know, that was during the war. Well, after the war ended, 
the, gov- the U.S. government granted amnesty to Confederate soldiers, but it didn't apply to Quantrill's guerrillas. So they were outlawed. Jesse tried to turn himself in, and he got shot through the chest. Uh, it was through his right lung. It was a bullet right through his right lung. Somehow he survived, and that was just – that was the second time he'd been shot through the right lung. But uh, he survived a second time, and uh, you know it was – he couldn't turn himself in. If you did, you would be executed. So they were outlawed. And I believe that's the main reason they, they started their outlaw career. They had no other choice. They were, gonna, they were being hunted. If they were found or surrendered, they were executed. So they might as well live up to their name. Okay. And, yeah, it does seem like there is – there might be some – post-traumatic stress disorder involved in what he was doing as well. Uh, just, you know, witnessing, uh, you know, his family being, um, uh, you know, brutally beaten as well as, uh, you know, what he suffered. Uh, it, it, it is more understandable than you know, just born. You know, uh, you know, born, uh, you know he wasn't born bad. Um, you know, I'm just trying to make that d- yeah. distinction. Well, he probably would have had a different life if he didn't have uh, uh, witness those kinds of horrific events. Exactly. He came from a good family. Uh, they were well educated. Frank was well known for quoting Shakespeare. He loved Shakespeare. He loved quoting Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, they were his his father was a Baptist minister, and he was also one of the founders of William Jewell College. So you know they came from an educated, good family background. And if, if it hadn't been for the war, he may have just you know he may have been a doctor or or an attorney or something like that or or a farmer, but uh, you know just just a normal person. So uh, Dan after. Uh, yeah. So after the he, he was not gr- granted the amnesty. You know, what? You know, can you, you know, just give us a little idea of what his career was as an outlaw? Like, you know, what what, you know, what were the guerrillas? Well, uh, during during the war, you know, they got that was basically a good training for his career as an outlaw. Uh, they learned, you know, guerrilla tactics, which are very hard to fight against. Uh, they, after the Civil War, when he began his outlaw career, they they struck trains, banks, and stages uh, mostly, um, and they they always did it. it. It reminds me of a special forces group. They had their plan. They had a target. They knew, you know. They they didn't go away empty-handed, so they they had inside knowledge, knowing there was. And I don't know the details on that. I'll, I've always wondered how they knew which train would have the you know the the gold shipment or things like that. Um, it was they they knew what they were doing, and it, it reminds me of a special forces group. They had good intel. They didn't let anything stand in their way, and they got the job done, except for Northfield, Minnesota. But I don't believe Jesse was in Northfield. I think that was Wood Height, his cousin. Hmm. 
And I don't know if you know about Northfield, Minnesota. That was the, uh, that was supposedly, it's been chalked up as the fall of the James gang. Uh, They rode into Northfield, Minnesota to rob a bank and the people in the town were waiting on them and they got shot to pieces. I mean, they, they got shot up. They all got out of town, but the younger, the younger brothers were captured. Uh, They were wounded bad. One of them was shot through the mouth. Uh, They spent, a good part of their lives in prison and they said the legend says that Jesse and Frank got away they did get away but Jesse wasn't at Northfield Minnesota I believe that was his cousin Wood Height who bore a strong resemblance to Jesse hmm. okay um, so that that may uh, co- correct some of the misconceptions but so, so, you know, listeners at some point um, may need to uh, cor- correct. But uh, you know, speaking of that, uh, you know, you had a lot of, uh, you know, putting your book together. You had uh, information coming from other uh, people, you know, like the old timer you know, who. Yeah, may have known him. He, he actually lit. Uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll get into that, uh, uh, here, here shortly. But he actually lived to be very old. So you know, there are uh, you know people who you, know, you, you spoke to, or you know, your you, uh, your mom spoke to uh, when she was compiling her book, where they actually. Uh, uh, New Jesse, yes, and um, yeah. So, what what are some things that yeah you, uh, you heard from those you know, people contributing information uh, to your family's research? Uh, you, know, you also have uh, uh, other samples of uh, maybe a little. Embellished stories versus you know what was handed down, uh, you know, to uh, you know, like the family legends. You know, what are some of the uh, comparisons and contrasts that you learned? Well, when he was uh, a lot of the old timers had a lot of good stories. Uh, when he came to Texas, he came. He had two. He he had a pack horse with him, and the, his saddlebags were full of gold coins. Um, back in those days, Reconstruction America, you know, after the Civil War, it mm-hmm. was very hard for some, especially a Southerner, to have much money at all. Uh, the South was broke, and you know, he comes riding into Texas with a saddlebag full of coins. You know, he didn't he didn't show it off, but uh, that was carried. That was one of the stories carried down through the family. He met his future father-in-law. They had already known one another somehow, and I don't know how right now but his his father-in-law was captain thomas hudson Barron. he was a former texas ranger um he married thomas Barron's daughter mary ellen uh, but when he rode into texas he met Barron. a few weeks later they made it to Barron's ranch and he uh purchased 160 acres from Barron, and he paid for it with gold coins um and, and you know there's well there's a lot of other stories involving 
the gold and, you know, he buried a lot of it. Uh, other, I'm trying to think and brainstorming of all the old stories I've heard. Uh, George Roman, for example, he, I knew George. He was a good man. He was a friend. Uh, he passed away in El Paso about 10 years ago, but he helped when he was 10 years old, Jesse was in his nineties and, um, Jesse had hired him. He was in his early nineties, late eighties, early nineties. Um, Jesse swore George to an oath and hired him to help him move 680 bars of gold. And they, they moved it about 30 miles from Jesse's home in Blevins, Texas, met some other old men and buried it. Uh, that gold's now located on the uh, Fort Hood military reservation. So I, I'd say that's pretty inaccessible. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, there's that. Uh, George said when, when, when he would walk, you know, it was, this was back in the old days. George was 10. Uh, it was in the 1930s. George would walk from his, you know, his ha- home past Jesse's home. And he said Jesse would sit up on the porch with uh, drinking lemonade and would call him up to the porch to sit with him, and they'd talk, and Jesse, they would just talk. He didn't go into a lot of details about what they spoke about, which I wish, I would love to have known just what what kind of conversations they had. But he said uh, Jesse told him, he, he pointed at a rock the size of a golf ball, and he told George to walk 40 paces out across the yard and set the rock down. And when, Je- when George got back from setting the rock down, he said Jesse drew his pistol as he was stepping off the porch and shot it, uh, shot the rock the size of a golf ball. And this is a man in his 80s, you know, at the time, shooting you know, just perfectly. They said he was an extremely good marksman and very quick. Uh, George said when he saw that, it was a big gun, a big man with a great big mustache and a big hat, and it just scared him to death. <laughs> He said he, he from that day on he didn't think of you know he he was he was a little little afraid of him somebody who could shoot that good. It, it, and it, you know you, you do present some other information in your book about um, oh, the uh, James Farm and museum people who. Uh, kind of had some disputes with your versions of history versus you know what they've been putting on display for you know a long time at their museum. Uh, what's what's the story there? Yeah, well, you know the traditional story of Jesse James is that in 1882, uh, Bob Bob and Charlie Ford, who had infiltrated the gang. <clears throat> had uh, shot him in the back of the head, killed him for a reward, and that was the end of Jesse. Well, there's a lot of holes in their story. And, you know, when you grow up, our family has always had the story of, you know, Jesse faked his death, changed his name, lived out, lived to be an old man here in Texas, and died at the age of 97. Well, the, the traditional story, uh, after 20 years of research, now 30, but my mother had proven their, the traditional story to be completely false. Uh, it's full of holes, and all it takes is a little digging and, and looking into things like an investigator would 
and you can you can find the discrepancies in the holes pretty easy. She pointed it out in three books she had written. Um, our family photographs match known historically accepted photographs of Jesse. And we didn't just go to some guy who claimed to be an expert. My mother took the photos to the Texas Department of Public Safety, who is our version of the state police. Uh, they verified it. Their forensics lab verified that our photos match the historically accepted photos. Uh, she took them to the Austin Police Department forensic fo photo forensic photographic specialist. He verified that our you know our photos match, and she took it to a third one. At the time, it was a company named Visionics, and they they were purchased later by a company named Identics. But they were world leaders in facial recognition technology, and they too verified that our family photos matched the the historically accepted photos of Jesse, his mother, and other other family members like Reuben Samuel, his uh, stepfather. So you know we started with that. That was the first big aha moment. Uh, you know when you've got the photos matching plus the family legends. We had his diary, which mentions known gang members, Bud Singleton and, and others. Um, also in his diary, he, he would vaguely, you know, he would list the trips they were going on, that he would go on. Like he, he went with his friends to Louisiana, to Shreveport, hopped uh, a steamboat, the Emily Labarge, I believe, was Amelia Labarge or Emily Labarge. But anyway... That was the name of the steamship. They hopped that, went down to Natchitoches, uh, got off the steamboat, and then rode back north along a, uh, a road. And they stayed at a few people's places who have been also verified as being part, having associations with the James Gang. Um, during those trips, if you look at the historical, like a, a news reports of robberies, the steamship had been robbed at the same time he was there. A stagecoach was robbed at the same time he was there on the road. Uh, all these robberies happened, and he mentioned known gang members. So, you know, that fits. And then there's a lot of other evidence that just falls into place like that. But the big, the big one was, you know, they had a, an exhumation of Jesse James's alleged grave in 1995 and up in Missouri, in Kearney, Missouri. And they claimed that they proved with DNA that Jesse James was shot and killed in 1882. Well, mom started looking into that, and my sister and I, my sister Teresa and I helped her with a lot of the research. We, what we found that the, uh, the exclamation was false. When they dug in the grave, first of all, they didn't need to, to open the grave like they did and completely excavate it. Um, all, all that's needed is to bore down into a grave and retrieve a dime-sized sample of bone. But they, they made a show out of it. They dug up the entire grave. The guy they had, had heading the exhumation wasn't even a doctor. He was a law professor. Um, so then when they dug up the grave, they found male and female bones and female clothes. And that didn't make sense. You know, that, that, that's all mixed up, a lot of different bones in one grave. So... Uh, mm -hmm. They, they went from that to they, – they didn't retrieve any DNA from the grave. Then they subpoenaed the James Farman Museum and got a court order to, re, to use a, a sample of Jesse's hair and what was supposed to be one of Jesse's teeth, and they were going to test those for DNA. Well, the attorney 
he's now an attorney. His name's Stephen Caruso. At the time, he was the the county commissioner for Clay County. He told my mother and I in person that he the hair that was submitted, he was in control of the hair. He had it in his possession, and the tooth in a Tupperware bowl they had. Uh, he pulled a hair out of his friend's head. He, he didn't agree with the way they were doing the, the whole exhumation. He said it was a tawdry sideshow. It was wrong the way they were doing it. He didn't like it, so he wasn't going to submit the real hair. He pulled the hair out of his friend's head, who, who was John Hartman, the Clay County Parks director at the time. And he, he used John Hartman's hair and submitted that. They tested it and, and showed that it had dye on it and acted like this is proof that Jesse dyed his hair. Well, then the tooth they tested that they say they got the DNA from, it was, it was exhumed from the yard of the James Farm in 1978 from the original grave that Jesse was supposed to have been buried in. Well, in 1978, they dug up where the grave was. They found a human tooth, uh, a dog's tooth, a hog's tooth, and some other animal bones. And they kept the human tooth in a Tupperware bowl. All these people had touched it. It had gone from person to person. And then they submitted that for DNA testing and claimed, we proved this is Jesse. Well, it's a tooth from the yard. It could have been anybody's tooth. There's no proof as to whose tooth that was. Uh, there's a lot of holes in the story. So basically what they pretended and and played off as proof, you know, we have DNA proof is no proof at all. They proved nothing. They, it, they And when the truth about that is told, they basically embarrassed themselves. So, um, you know, that that was a huge moment. And then since then, yeah. we've had other we've had other findings, family photos. One of the more recent findings is a photo showing my great-great-grandfather, Jesse James, a.k.a. James Lafayette Courtney, standing next to his mother at his own funeral. <laughs> and that's some, that was an amazing photo to find. He attended his own funeral, and the reason he could get by with that, nobody could ID him except his immediate family and his closest friends. Nobody really knew what he looked like. The man in the grave is his first cousin, Wood Height who bore a strong resemblance to Jesse. Right, okay. <laughs> but, yeah, this the story keeps getting uh what curiouser and curiouser. Yes, it so, is. It's been a it's been an amazing adventure to say the least. But you know, Dan, what you were saying about you know, you get the uh, like nearly the FBI you know, facial recognition testing with a lot of today's high tech gadgets. You know, that that might give you some, yeah, a lot more proof than uh, yeah, a bunch of bone like. Two or three people buried in like a, a mass grave, and you just take one bone from it and do a DNA testing of that. I, it's like I, I, I know you have to document. I, I know I've had to do that in one of my articles where it's not really a valid test if you know the museum is aware that they're like three or four. Uh, right thigh bones in a, a Tupperware container where it, uh, you know, someone from a mound was located. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it, it's not really a valid test. Exactly, but, and, and you know the it wasn't just one group of forensics. You know the the forensic groups who who examined our photographs and verified that you know ours matched the historically known ones. Uh-huh. Um, that it was three separate groups of highly credentialed professionals. Uh, some of the people they used <laughs> in the past were, and I'm not mocking the people, they did their best, but they went to guys who were artists, you know, oil painters. And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm, I'm not mocking them, but at the same time, that's, that's far from highly credentialed. When, when you're playing with history, you want to make sure that everything you have is, is verified by the most qualified people you can find. And, you know, an oil painter versus people who are highly credentialed forensics professionals, it just, there's no comparison in my opinion. <laughs> right. So, you know, Dan, so, you know, uh, you, know you establish, you know, your family's uh, uh, connection to J- Jesse James and, um, as you start getting into your uh, book, um, you know, you start telling us, you know, a little bit about you know, the Knights of the Golden Circle, and you know, that might be a uh, uh, topic that is going to be developed uh, in some upcoming shows, but. It, you, know, you would think that the uh, 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 you know reconstruction period, you know the Knights of the Golden Circle would fit in with you know Jesse's um, you know. Uh, but biography at, at that time was like the 1870s, mm-hmm. uh, 1880s. Uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit about the you know, Knights of Golden Circle? But yeah, you, know, you do uh, veer away from uh, turning this into a Knights of the Golden Circle. Uh, story. So uh, let's get an understanding of what the group, the Knights of the Golden Circle, were about. Okay. Um, well, <clears throat> the Knights of the Golden Circle were a uh, kind of a covert group. They were a secret society. They operated covertly during the Civil War, and basically during the war, their their job was to cause trouble in any way they could to slow down the movements of Union troops. Uh, there, it said that you know most of Quantrill's guerrillas were Knights of the Golden Circle and other guerrilla groups throughout the South. Um, they you know were spies. They were um, saboteurs. They did all all sorts of activities, basically, you know, to just cause trouble for the Union troops. You know, they were at war, so that's not surprising at all. Uh, both groups are going to have groups who do, you know both sides would have groups who did things like that. Uh, they were very good at what they did, and they caused a lot of trouble. Um, Je- Jesse has been cl- – it's been claimed that he – you know, a lot of people say he definitely was, 
and they lump in guys like Albert Pike and others. And it wouldn't shock me if during the war they may have been part of that group. But And at first, for a while, I believed the treasure was Knights of the Golden Circle treasure. Uh, their goal after the war was said to have – they wanted to gain enough wealth and money, and they buried it in catches across the um, America, Canada, and also Mexico. And that, that was the legend about you know the KGC. They wanted to gain as much wealth as they could, bury it and hide it and save it until they had enough to fund a second civil war. And it was supposed to be, you know, the catches were said to have been strategically located all over the place. So if they, if they needed it, they, they'd always be near one and they could retrieve it and cash it in to buy whatever they needed, supplies or whatever. Um, so I thought, you know, that kind of makes sense. And it wouldn't shock me if they were part of that group. I've never seen any proof that they were, but it's a secret society, so it's easy to lump all these people in, and you know who's going to argue? Nobody knows. Or the, if someone does, they're, they're keeping quiet about it. So uh, while, as you can imagine, any outlaw like Jesse, they've got treasure legends. A lot of them have treasure legends surrounding them. And we had a map that had been passed down through the family. I'd seen several other maps, and then, like I'd mentioned earlier, George Roaming had the story of burying 680 bars of gold with Jesse. Um, so, and he he drew out a map and showed us where it was supposed to be. Um, so, I used that. And I started trying to find the treasures. I thought it, at most I may find a jar of gold or a saddlebag full of coins, and you know I thought it'd be great to have something that belonged to my great great grandfather. Like something like that. I mean, it was it'd be a great historical value. Right. So, and I I wanted you know I wanted to find it. Who wouldn't want to find treasure? So, I started searching, researching, looking for it. And around that time, um, former former Attorney General of the State of Texas, the late Wagner Carr, he he had been talking to my mother for years about Jesse. He he originally believed that J. Frank Dalton was Jesse, but after getting to know my mom and they talked for a while, he, he believed our story. Uh, mom showed him, you know, where the, she debunked the, the J. Frank Dalton stories. Um, well, he, he, after talking, he, he had his driver show my mother and me where several treasures had been located, but were recovered. And these were very large treasures. So using the template, there's, there's a, a treasure template called the KGC template or Knights of the Golden Circle treasure template. Um, mm -hmm. you, can, you can find that online in a lot of places, and I found it. Some, somebody had you know, shown, shown me. It had been in several books and other places. I personally think J. Frank Dalton got that from my great-grandmother, Ida. Uh, when, after Jesse had died, his daughter, Ida, my great-grandmother, was living in Marble Falls, Texas, and J. Frank Dalton had stayed right across the street from her house in the Roper Hotel for several months. And uh, he would talk to her. When he left town, she had been missing some papers, she, you know, some of her, her father's papers, Jesse's stuff. And uh, I don't know if he took it or if he purchased it from one of her Ida's children. I don't know how he got his hands on it. Um, that's a mystery. But I believe that's where he got the treasure template that was later published as a KGC template. So trying to make a long story short, I used the template. I didn't have a scale for it until 
I was shown, you know, the map that George Roman drew for us and the treasures that Wagner Carr had his driver show us, the treasure where they where they used to be. Um, so I used those locations and I that's how I discovered the scale of the template. And over time, it just grew into more discoveries, more treasures. The template, when you, you uh, line it up next to each other. And they end up covering – it turns into a grid system that covers Canada, America, and Mexico, the Americas. And it, it just got huge. I, I started noticing these – a lot of the locations on the template, which now by that time I refer to as the Veil template, um, they lined up with other not only known treasure sites where treasures had been recovered, not just in Texas but other states, but they also line up with uh, historical monuments and sites of historical importance, like uh, the Los Lunas Decalogue Stone in New Mexico, um, the, the Kensington Rune Stone, which Scott Walter had done a lot of work on, uh, mm -hmm. the Newport, Newport Tower, and even areas surrounding Oak Island. So I thought, okay, it lines up with these ancient sites. Perhaps the KGC had used some of these areas for, uh, you know, like the historic sites as markers. So maybe that's why it belonged, you know, maybe that's why those were located on the template. It was real puzzling. Um, but then I found out about Victoria Peak, New Mexico. And this was a treasure site. Supposedly, uh, a man by the name of Doc Noss had discovered it. It was mentioned in the Watergate hearings. So you know there was something of great importance in a mountain out in the middle of the desert in New Mexico for it to end up in the Watergate hearings. Uh, <laughs> and so I got to researching that. It turned out the treasures, a lot of the treasures found in Victoria Peak were much older by centuries than the KGC. So that started ruling out the KGC as, there, as having involved, been involved in this. And then it, it also tied in with the Bruton Parish Vault in Williamsburg, Virginia. And that predates the KGC by several centuries. So, you know, it, that things started making me question the KGC's involvement. I, I, I came to find out or to believe that the KGC, if they played any role in this at all, it was a very small role and very limited. And they probably didn't have, if they did play a role, it wasn't an important role at all or wasn't very important. Uh, I think they had treasures, but I think their treasures may have been recovered by other people and taken away from them. Uh, but just just for you know, conversation's sake, if the KGC's goal was to refund a second civil war, there was more gold supposedly found in Victoria Peak than Spain had taken from the New World in all the years they were taking gold and shipping it back to Spain. So if they were going to fund a new civil war, a second civil war, there was more than enough in Victoria Peak to do that. So I, I, you know, that's another thing that just kind of debunked the KGC involvement in the story in my mind. Okay, uh, so yeah, you just ruled out. Uh, what one source of uh, you know that I would have influenced the the, the placement of uh, K 
Jesse's treasures. So you, know, you have to look for another group that may have had an influence on Jesse to you know, make one of these temp templates. Like, exactly. so, uh, can, can you tell us like about your shift away from the Knights of the Golden Circle to another? Yeah. Um, group. Well, <clears throat> when Jesse came to Texas, you know, he was under living under the alias of James Lafayette Courtney. Um, he joined, he joined, you know, he was, he became a Freemason. Um, some people in the family claim he was a Freemason before he came to Texas. There's no proof of that. I just know that when he came to Texas, he became a Freemason and he had used a, well, so there was a tie with uh, some of the symbols he'd written, um, things I'd researched seemed to bear a strong resemblance to Freemasonic uh, symbols. And, but, but that didn't, that doesn't, at first I wasn't sure, you know, for a long time I kept researching and researching, reading um, while I would research that, trying to find out who put this there, who designed the template, why, why did they put it there? Um, all these questions constantly, and it took a long time. It wasn't just over, overnight. This took years of research, but eventually I tied it in. Um, the Freemason, Jesse was a Freemason. Uh, Albert Pike, we all know, was a Freemason, very famous mm -hmm. Freemason. I started reading Pike's works and also other Freemasons like Manley Palmer Hall, Timothy Hogan, um, a lot of different – I was reading everything I could get my hands on, just tr looking for clues or any kind of tie, and everything started to fall into line. Uh, Pike mentions a lot, of, uh, a lot about Kabbalah. He, he has a diagram of the Tree of Life, so I started researching that more. Well, I found out the, uh, there's actually two templates. There's the first template, which I used to refer to as the KGC template, and then there was a Tree of Life template that runs from – the Bruton Parish Vault in Williamsburg, Virginia, all the way to Victoria Peak, New Mexico. But it's 1,715 miles, uh, the distance between the two points. Well, the number 1,715 kept popping up in other areas, too. For example, you know, that's the distance from Bruton Parish to in miles. Well, from Bruton Parish to the Wren Building at William and Mary College, it's 1,715 feet. Uh, the Grand Lodge of, of England was – the Freemasonic Grand Lodge of, of England was formed in 1715. There's just a lot of numbers that kept popping up in a lot of different ways. So uh, I, I looked into that. Reading uh, Pike got me into reading Kabbalistic texts and looking for – you know, learning about Geomatria and, and as much as I could about the Kabbalah. Uh, different forms, uh, Jewish Kabbalah, Christian Kabbalah, occult Kabbalah. And I started, all these things started adding up different numbers, not just 1715, but other numbers. And they, the funny thing is to me, it was amazing to me. It wasn't funny. I was just stunned. Um, when I did the 1715 can be broken down into five times seven times seven times seven. Well, I found, uh, to make a long story short, I knew about the, the, the template in the Tree of Life design, but the 1715, which makes up the center pillar of that Tree of Life template, um, it, it can be translated 
Kabbalistically into meaning behold the tree of life. Um, and then there were other numbers like uh, from Victoria Peak to another treasure that was 12 miles from my home. It's 548 miles. That can be broken down into four times 137. The number four in in uh, Hebrew or Kabbalah, you know, in Kabbalah can be translated as door. And 137 is the geometria for the word Kabbalah. So it's like behold the tree of life and door to Kabbalah. Uh, it just seems all there. And there's there so much more I've mentioned in my book where these numbers just keep adding up. And there's basically it's like a signature and telling you all about it in the form of numbers and geometric designs. Mm-hmm. Right, so yeah, I, that's fascinating. And I thought, OK, this is too much to to discount i started tracing back you know i I thought okay if if i'm right then there should be a clear trail kind of like a family tree or an organizational chart much like a mind map um there should be a clear-cut trail from jesse through freemasonry from freemasonry to whoever began this if freemasonry was involved and i believe from all my research, it ties from Jesse to Freemasonry, Albert Pike, back to the founding fathers of the United States, uh, beyond them to men like – like I mentioned, the William & Mary College in Williamsburg. The man who designed that building was Sir Christopher Wren. He was also a Freemason and a member of the Royal Society in England. Uh, Sir, it, it ties back from Sir Christopher Wren, Sir Isaac Newton, men like uh, Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon wrote a book called The New Atlantis, and The New Atlantis was basically a blueprint for what America was to be. They want, you know, all these persecuted groups, Jewish people, alchemists, um, Freemasons, the Templar, anybody who had any belief or did something that went against the established dogma or, or you know, the Catholic Church at the time, um, they, they could lose their head for speaking, you know, for just speaking their mind if it went against their their beliefs. So uh, they, I believe their goal was to create a new Atlantis, America, a place where there was liberty and freedom, different cultures, beliefs could get along in harmony and live a peaceful life with freedom and liberty. Uh, and I thought at the time when I, when I traced it back to, to Francis Bacon, I thought, okay, that's the guy who started it all. And, you know, I was satisfied for a while, but then as I kept reading and researching, it turned out he was, he was a big, important part of this, an extremely important part, but he wasn't the guy who started it. It tied back all the way to the Templar. And I traced the same way I did from Jesse to Francis Bacon through associations like a family tree. Um, it goes back to John D., who was the original 007, Francis Bacon's mentor. Um, people like Leonardo da Vinci, uh, John Hieropoulos, Johann Ruplin, back to the hidden map that I found who, on the book titled Porte Lucis, um, which was a translation of Abraham Gicatilla's work by a man named Paolo Riccio, who was also known as Paulus Riccius. He, he wrote the book in 1516, and it was also another interesting piece of trivia from that was uh, that 
the, the same publisher who published that book was the same publisher who had published several of the Grail stories. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. And there's a um, an illustration in Porte Lucis in the back of the book of a knight holding up what appears to be a Grail over his head or a chalice. And I, it, it was just a lot of interesting little things like that. But the hidden map was undeniable. The man sitting on a chair holding a tree of life and pointing towards the coastline of the United States at the time, the New World, uh, it, it fell in line perfectly with the Tree of Life template that I discovered. Uh, it all just kept falling into place, and it ties back past him through uh, Emperor Maximilian I, who was known to be a friend of Freemasonic guilds. Um, back then, there were operative Freemasons, you know, the, the cathedral builders who had passed down knowledge, uh, sacred knowledge and secret knowledge throughout you know, the generations. But it went further through different Jewish rabbis back to a famous rabbi by the name of Rashi, uh, who happened to be the favored court guest of Hugh, court, the Count of Champagne, who was one of the founders of the Knights Templar. And okay. now and, I need to catch my breath. <laughs> okay. And... It, it, yeah, you know, Dan, and, and you know the n- numerous illustrations that y- you have from uh, various texts. Um, I, I, you know, you, you know, you gave us a couple samples, but you know, you know one that was really intriguing. Um, it, it was the. Uh, Front piece of Porte Lucius with the uh, uh, shadow on the oh, yeah. uh, sit, sitting guy's uh, shoes and you know, the uh, floor in front of him, and he's sitting on um, uh, like a chair, a, 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 yeah. A, yeah, like a portable lawn chair, like a early 16th century portable lawn chair <laughs> yeah. it's some sort of folding chair i guess yeah, yeah 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 you see see him at the you know to you know take those little uh kind of chairs to the uh you know the you know ball, ball field to see, see see the kids uh yeah play baseball this summer it's basically the same thing um you know that uh, and you know you, you you're looking at it uh yeah you you you're detecting something in in the shadow that you know probably uh yeah, most everyone is going to miss uh and uh let's talk a little bit about that yeah yeah uh, uh, well the the chair he's sitting on uh ties in with Scott Walter's hooked x i mean if you look at the chair and the dagger he's wearing it makes a hooked X sign. Yeah, uh, it does. Yeah, he, on his shawl, he's got a, a crisscross pattern, or on over his shoulders. I'm not. I don't know if it's a shawl, but on his clothing, across his shoulders, there's a crisscross pattern, which is representative of the veil, which ties back into the veil template. Um, he's pointing at the floor, the shadow you mentioned, and it, it's. I, I kept for some. I thought, okay, why is the, why is he pointing at the floor? And, you know, when I noticed the chair being in the shape of Scott Walter's hooked X, 
I thought, okay, if there's that, there's other symbols other than the tree of life, which is um, an obvious symbol right out front. But I looked down at the floor and I thought that looks like the U.S. coast in a way. And part of the shadow looks like waves, like, you, you know, a, a depiction of water. So mm-hmm. I, I got curious. I thought, okay, this, this book was written in 1516. I found a world map that had been printed around the same time in the, you know, the same around that time period. Mm-hmm. I overlaid it over the, over the cover of Porte Lucis and it lined up perfectly with the, the coastline of the new world, you know, North America down through Central America and the top portion of South America. And I thought that's too, it just, I think that's what he's pointing at. He was, he looks, the man sitting in a chair appears to be dressed for travel. Um, he looks like a traveler, which has a lot of other meanings associated with a traveler. I mean, you could even tie a traveler back into guys like, well, mythology like Mercury or Hermes, uh, who, you know, but anyway, he's in alchemical meanings, but he's pointing, he looks like he's dressed for travel. He's pointing at his feet, which are pointing towards the new world, and he's holding the tree of life in his hand. Behind him on the wall are hash marks. And I thought, I, I don't know if those mean anything or not, but it was interesting that there were hash marks. And I noticed just while I was taking a break one day, uh, you know, after reading all I've read on Kabbalah, I, there was a new video out. Uh, I saw it on YouTube. It was by a, a lady by the name of Victoria Hanna. Uh, and she sang in, in uh, she lives in Israel, I believe. She, she was singing in Hebrew. Um, their alphabet song. They called it the alphabet song. And I noticed there was a lot of symbols in the video. At the end of the video, um, she, the, the children were drawing the same hash marks on a chalkboard. And I thought there's got to be something to that. So I investigated you know, the prayer that they were singing. And it turns out the hash marks represent rain, which is another symbol for blessings. So to me, it looks like he's sitting, you know, this man, which is probably a representation, in my opinion, of Abraham Gikatilla, who wrote the original work, he's, he's dressed for travel, he's holding a tree of life, he's pointing to the new world, and the hash marks on the wall behind him, it's like blessings. It's like, you know, head to the new world, that's where you'll find your blessings. That's how I took it. Um, mm-hmm. And it went deeper. I mean, the, the tree of life matches the tree of life template, and he was part of this. This is just part of the story when I was tracing it back to see how far back it went and where it originated. And this guy was an important, he was, was, this was a very important clue in the story. Okay. And Dan, uh, aside from the, the, uh, Porte Lucius, uh, looks like a, a woodcut, you know, you're also using another uh, famous artwork that is also uh, uses pointings, and yes. it seems to be guiding uh, people to a destination. And it's you know the shepherds of Arcadia, and well, it also fits into the. Uh, was it the Shugbury Hall? Yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, so, so you actually have 
uh, uh, like kind of like the same artwork at, uh, in, in the painting and re- reproduced at the uh, ca- uh, like castle site in, uh, in England. So, uh, can we talk a little bit about th- this other artwork and its imp- the importance that you found in locating these treasures? Yeah, the uh, <clears throat> the Shepherds of Arcadia, also known as Et in Arcadia Ego by Nicholas Poussin, uh, that was painted in 1637 or, or 38. Um, the first time I saw this was in the book, uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And that, that I, I had read the book and then I, I revisited it, uh, when I, you know, I was researching this and I got to looking, I noticed <laughs> that, uh, what the shadow of the man in the painting, who's on his knees kneeling and pointing at at the tomb, he's pointing at the letter R, which you know I, a lot of people have have uh, theorized. There's a lot of theories about you know what all this means, but I, I noticed the shadow and the what you know Nicholas Poussin was a master painter, so you would imagine you know he uses shadows. He would know, he would keep in mind the uh, the angle of light. And the angle of light was really off on this. And not only that, the shadow resembled, at first I thought maybe a heart symbol. A heart is a known, the shape of the heart is a known treasure symbol. A lot of treasure hunters are always looking for heart-shaped stones and other other things um, that are in the shape of a heart. But I got to looking at it closer, and it it actually looks like a harp or a lyre, you know, the musical instrument. Mm-hmm. And And... It puzzled me for a while. I uh, also the letter R. When when I started piecing that together, the letter there's there's a style of harp known as R shaped. Well, it's like an R shaped harp or R harps is what they call them. But anyway, um, the harp is representative of. And this I my big clue on this came about when I was reading the uh, an essay by a Rosicrucian by the name of uh, Peter Dawkins. And I'd seen a few videos from him. I read some of his essays, and he wrote an essay about uh, Oak Island. Well, he had mentioned the constellation Cygnus, which is a swan, and that was supposed that had a lot to do with the star Deneb, and it had a lot to do with the Oak Island mystery, the treasures that are said to be buried at Oak Island. And I thought, okay, maybe something in this painting ties in with that. And I found out the harp represents the constellation Lyra, uh, which is at the time in Cassini's celestial globe of 1792, when a lot of this was happening uh, around that time period, the, uh, uh, the harp represents Lyra. It was placed at that time located over the, uh, the, the heartland of the United States. And I thought, okay, if this is true, then they, you know, may, there's got to be other clues. And I finally identified that the people in the painting are also representative of constellations. Like the man kneeling represents Hercules. Um, Hercules knelt before the eagle. See, the constellation Lyra in the classical mythology and in the, 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 the astrological maps was portrayed as a – an eagle by some people, some cultures said it was a buzzard, 
but it was also portrayed as an eagle, and it had the harp of Orpheus placed in the stars with it uh, to honor the mythological uh, character by the name of Orpheus. Uh, it ties in with a lot of the Greek and Roman mythology as well, but Hercules knelt before the eagle. The eagle was also representative of Zeus, and he uh it, it just it uh, it ties in with the constellations perfectly and they're and with with lyra in the center i believe that's a pointer basically showing that the treasures were moved to the new world um uh, it's a, it's pusan was known to hide a lot of secret knowledge and secrets in and codes in his paintings and i believe that's one of them i believe that represents lyra and the tre part of the treasure that is located in the heartland of the United States. And I believe it also ties in, it ties in with the tree of life template um, very well. And I believe it ties in with the seven cities of gold, the old legends of Cibola and the lost seven cities of gold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, Dan with, um, yeah, you're, in your book, you know, you have, uh, uh, you know, reproduction of uh, Poussin's painting, and you know, on, on the next page, eighty-one, uh, you, you show where many of these uh, um, treasure sites are, are, are located. You know, and of course, you know, there's uh, Oak Islands. Uh, out by Cordell's house and you know, uh, Newport Tower, uh, and you know, I think later this fall we're going to be doing a more in-depth um, uh, st study of that structure. Uh, but but what was at um, the the Bruton uh, Church? It, 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 yeah. I, or like you know, went to uh, Williamsburg, uh, twenty-five years ago or so, mm -hmm. and yes, saw the uh, Wren Building. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, just walked around the exterior of the uh, Bruton Parish uh, Church. Um, but you know, it just seems to be like one of those uh, churches where a lot of the founding fathers are stopping. In, in and something's going on, and it's like you know, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington are uh, attending service at the same time. It, you know, what is the um, significance of that church? You're, you're talking about the uh, tunnels and vaults under the church. Uh, is that a? I, I didn't yeah. see that. Uh, on my uh, on my tour in the area, didn't hear anything about it. It was it, it was something documented being stored there that may have been brought across uh, the the ocean, you know, some treasure. Yeah, um, I believe part. Well, when when I was researching, you know, trying to to, to find out who did this and why, uh, I came across the writings of Marie Maria Bauer. Mm -hmm. Uh, later, Maria Bauer Hall, 
she married Manley Palmer Hall, who was a famous, you know, he's a 33rd degree Freemason author and lecturer. Um, he was, he'd written a lot of, a lot of books. One of my favorites was the, uh, the secret teachings of all ages. Um, in, in Maria's book, foundations unearthed, she had, she, she had been researching Francis Bacon and the Bruton parish church. Um, she, she had, you know, said that she'd found codes, uh, in different places in, in, uh, while researching Francis Bacon and Shakespeare and tombstones in the Bruton Parish Cemetery, um, she had found hidden codes that led to the original foundations of the original Bruton Parish Church. People laughed at her, or if they didn't laugh, they just didn't believe her, uh, and she proved them wrong. She used the codes she found and located and proved that it did, you know, she found the, the codes led to the original foundation. Um, which is another number. Uh, the the church that stands now was also built in 1715, which is how that number, which I'd mentioned earlier, also ties in. But mm-hmm. uh, she said she also said that the uh, the codes also indicated a, a vault buried under the cem- you know, in the cemetery beneath the ground, a hidden vault that contained some sort of treasure that could be of great historic and significant, you know, uh, spiritual value. Um, it, uh, something of, that would be earth shaking, you know, just like a history changing information, documents and different items. And I, I would love to know what was in there. I don't know if it's been recovered. I don't, they, she, she tried to excavate it and then was stopped. And I don't know if, I don't know of any further excavations that have ever been done there. Uh, I don't know. I wish I wish I knew what was in there. I don't know if it's still there or, or if that's been recovered. I would imagine it's been recovered. If there were tunnels leading to it, someone could have easily moved it or recovered it from one of the tunnels. She also claimed that there were tunnels leading from that vault to different locations around around the church. Okay, and uh, yeah, just to back up for a second, you know, the uh, Shepherds of Arcadia painting, um, you know, we've had uh, Bill Mann as a guest a couple times, and uh, what uh, he, he was with Barbara two or three weeks ago, um, but yeah, you know, he's you know, like one of the highest ranking. Masons in Canada. It's, you know, uh, we we just really enjoyed having him as a guest, and he he covers uh, uh, this painting as well with you know uh, you know it's some different interpretations than uh, what you uh, present. Uh, but uh, uh, Bill also. Um, uh, uh, had a really good review of uh, your book too, since you know, you know he uh, he'd be one of the leading authorities that um, you you would want to have. Yeah, uh, his perspective on your book, since you're kind of going. Uh, you, you, you're, you're weaving, you know, just like family biography and incorporating so much 
new material that uh, uh, dovetailed you into uh, in the you know the Masonic uh, uh, information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was happy when I when I saw the endorsement when I first read the endorsement from Timothy Hogan, who's the Templar Grandmaster, and also William Mann. It was I. I can't tell you how proud I felt to have those two endorsements. Uh, it, it, that was amazing. Just I, I thought, okay, I'm done. It can't get better than this. <laughs> I'm just gonna leave. So <laughs> it was that was that was amazing to me. But yeah, what you mentioned, uh, different interpretations in diff- in the paintings. Um, one thing I would say about that, uh, Albert Pike had mentioned in Morals and Dogma how symbols have oftentimes multiple meanings. And there could be several stories. Uh, you could have the same symbols telling several stories. Uh, it could mean, I mean, there, there's a lot that you, you could basically have enough stories and just a few symbols in a painting to, to enough stories to write a book or, or more than one book. Uh, so, you know, if, if he had a different interpretation I'd like, you know, those different interpretations aren't necessarily wrong because they're different. It's just another side of the story. Oh, right. Yeah, there's, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, Barbara and I talk about that a lot, too. It's, you know, just different doesn't mean uh, anyone's superior. It's just different. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it just a, 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 another perspective that someone else may have missed. And, and to take, me, that's what makes symbols so beautiful, in my opinion, is is all the multiple meanings that they can carry with them. Um, it's to, it almost seems more advanced than than writing. If you if you know what the symbols mean, if you knew all the meanings, that that's a lot of knowledge that you could you could convey in just a simple painting. Yeah, and. The um, example uh, uh, we were talking about a few minutes ago with the uh, shadow in front of the seated figure, uh, you have to know what to look look for, but it's it's there in the message uh, or the paintings. There, there, there is a message that the artist worked very hard to put it in there to say something. It's right. just most of us aren't uh, trained to know what to look for. That's that's true. And, and, uh, and you do you know, with these templates, you, know, you do talk about uh, – uh, you know, one of the things it, it took you uh, a, a while to understand uh, was the uh, positioning of the turkey tracks and uh, stars. Yeah, those those the turkey tracks was very frustrating, <laughs> simple for me. Um, and then you know, after I got I got deep into this and started everything started connecting, that fell in place eventually. And that, that I remember when I first discovered the meanings behind what's called the turkey track, which is actually not a turkey track, but um, it, it was 
that that was a very happy moment for me when I found the meanings behind that and what it actually meant. And the interesting thing, you know, it, it's a representation of the tree of life. Um, and and the ancient and it, it's it, it from from what I've researched, that representation of the tree of life originated in Egypt. It may go back further, but it can definitely be traced back to the Egyptians. So, uh, you know, when I when I found that, it was it 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 really was satisfying. I, that's that's the best word I can come up with right now. It was just very satisfying to find the answers behind that. Uh, the tree, of, the turkey track representing the tree of life, just fell in with all the other research that I had already discovered, like the tree of life template and so many other aspects of the numbers, the distances, uh, the dimensions of the template, the veil template ties in with the tree of life template in that a lot of the dimensions and the symbols also represent the tree of life. So they all complemented each other very well. It, 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 as you know, we've spoken a little bit about the Victoria uh, site in New Mexico and Williamsburg, Virginia, and uh, up to Oak Island. Yeah, you uh, do, do extend your international uh, investigation of how all these places seem to uh, present a little bit of uh, just, you know, a, a little bit here and there to the story. Uh, you, you know, you also have like Roslyn Chapel. Uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, some really in, in, interesting material there. The uh, Dome of the Rock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's going, you know, yeah, back to the, uh, Foundations of Christianity, the overlap of uh, uh, it, it is long. Uh, you know, you have so many layers of um, spirituality or philosophies in. You know, the, you know, throw the Kabbalah in there as well, and. Yeah, you know, they all play a role in uh, in the mi- Middle Eastern um, history, but but they do show up here in America. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, some of these international, yeah. uh, uh, like the uh, you know just say with the uh, uh, Dome of the Rock and overlaying the. Uh, um, Templates over the foundations of that mosque. Yeah, well, one of the biggest clues I had when uh, when I was you know trying to trace it back to its origins, like the Templar, uh, came from interviews and writings done by Timothy Hogan, the Templar Grandmaster, um, who I'd mentioned earlier, and he uh, had had stated that the Templar. You see, a lot of people like to lump the Templar in with the Crusaders uh, who you know, raided the Holy Lands and 
and did all the, did their thing. Well, he he had illustrated how the Templar didn't they they had secret information from men like Rabbi Rashi and others who had a well, well they 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 entered the Holy Land long before the Crusades began. Are you there? You there? Can you hear me? Hello. Yeah, I hear. I hear you. I hear you. Okay, thanks. Thanks. Uh, I heard a bump or something. Anyway, uh, Timothy Hogan had illustrated how the 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 Knights Templar had gone much earlier than the Crusades began. They entered the Holy Lands. They met with different peoples of different faiths, like uh, you know, Drew, Sufi mystics, the people of the Druze tradition, Jewish uh, elders, rabbis, and Kabbalists, and all these different faiths, they knew what was coming. They knew the Crusades were coming. They knew what would happen during a war of that scale. Things would get destroyed. Uh, sacred and historic texts could be destroyed easily. So they wanted to safeguard all that treasures, all this stuff that could have been taken and ruined or misspent. Uh, they, they went in with the goal of preserving all of this, and that's exactly what they did. That's where the treasures originated from. Uh, a lot of them, the, the holy lands from different religions and different texts, and they were there to protect it and preserve it, not not just for themselves, but for the good of mankind. Um, and that's basically the point of this entire story is they 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 did this for not themselves. It wasn't for their own gain. It was for the good of mankind. And uh, as you know, time – oh, are you there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm here. I, you know, it. I find it very fascinating that certainly throughout all time, there have always, there's always been intrigue and interest, and um, there's been a magic sort of attached to stories of treasure. But, but I'm finding that that of late, within the last decade or so, uh, there has been more of a of a search and an awakening about different treasures and it's almost as though a lot of them have been waiting to come into the fore to come into the consciousness of of all of humanity i mean this seems to be a time when especially the the antiquities the stuff from from uh, you know the 1200s 1100s the first century yeah. um those treasures are are coming into everybody's um frame of reference and it's just, it's not uncommon for people to be talking about all of these treasures. And I, I'm wondering if it's almost as though there's a grand plan of some sort that, that when society, humanity is ready for these treasures, that they are going to come into the awareness and possibly even been found. Have you postured on That's any exact, of that at all? I have the same thoughts. Uh, when, when people are ready, things seem to come out. Um, it may even tie in with my research, um, you know, if it wasn't ready to be known, it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have found it. Um, that, that's how I view it. It was just meant to be not just my research, but research from other people like William Mann, uh, Timothy Hogan, and a lot of other authors. Things come out when they're meant to come out. I don't know who, whose plan it is, but I do <laughs> believe there's a plan. <laughs> don't you think it's been quite fascinating that all of these hints, and these messages and these codes have been hidden from all of us for 
centuries, and suddenly people are picking up on them, and it's like, oh, whoa, that's a signal for this, and this means that, and and you, you kind of go, you, you want to go back and, and talk to Poussin and, and kind of say, all right, so not now, but hundreds of years from now, we want to have people discover this treasure. How are we going to, you know, trigger something in their memories and and let them know that, there is a treasure there? That would be great. I know during the research when all this started falling together, you get a strange feeling of, some kind of it's like a connection with people from the past uh reading albert mm-hmm. pike and i don't even i would never even think of claiming that i could be close to the level albert pike was you know mentally uh, that guy he was a, a a genius and other people like him like you mentioned Poussin, it's almost like you you've got a slight connection with them in some way you're i'm discovering things that they knew and it's almost like I'm seeing in a odd way through their eyes at times. If that well, makes yeah, any and you sense. Mentioned, and you mentioned one of my favorite books, that's Manly P. Hall's book. I mean, these people, you know, are, are well over 100, 100 years or more in our past, and yet they knew enough to say humanity isn't ready now, but someday they will be, and here are the clues. And when they get to the point where their consciousness is raised up enough so that they see the clues, then it will give them, it's a trail of breadcrumbs that leads to something. And, you know, sometimes a treasure isn't gold and stuff like that. Sometimes it's knowledge. And, exactly. you know, it, it's, and you're on such an, an amazing trip and things fall into place. So I, I, I think it's really cool. I can't see where you go to next. I've often thought, and you you stated that perfectly. Um, I've often thought that a lot of the, like I'm, I believe the veil template has a lot of the uh, old tent, you know, like traditional treasure, gold, silver, items like that. And they range from mm-hmm. small, like a, a jar maybe, to, to a large catch. But I've often wondered if that's not more of a decoy in a way. Yeah, I think it also carries a spiritual or some type of significance to it. But I think the treasures that are located in the in the Tree of Life template are of a much more significant value, like knowledge and things of spiritual nature, uh, a spiritual nature, items of you know historical importance and spiritual importance. Yeah. yeah and that, what, before we, what, oh well, let me just finish and then I'll give you your show back. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I I really I really kind of think that that. While while the gold is tantalizing, the the people who are just after the gold aren't of a level of consciousness to understand what other treasures are there, and so they won't find that physical treasure because they aren't searching for the right treasure. I agree. I agree completely. That that's a very they're more. It's more of a, and I'm not gonna. I, I don't want to knock anybody, but it's more of a. A primitive nature, and like you said, it's a lower level. And if they're not ready, they're not going to find it. Mm-hmm. And I've often Mark. wondered I got about carried that. Away. <laughs> well, thanks. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you jumped in. That, that was you said that perfectly. No, and uh, you know, Barbara, it, it, you know, some of the uh, talks we've had with uh, Jason Gerald, and he, he's talked about the. Uh, 
basically the tree of life from uh, Native American uh, 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 mythology as well. So yeah. it, it's it's the, the the same concept is being used by all these different cultures at different periods. It, it, it's just like a, a, almost like a built into the human psyche. Uh, idea of connecting upper and lower worlds, this world. Exactly, like the veil template that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, it it plays a huge role in this, but it's also it. I I studied Jewish Kabbalah, Christian Kabbalah, and a little occult Kabbalah in finding answers behind the answers I needed. You know where what it, and that was amazing. But I have noticed not only the tree of life, but like the veil template, that design, the crisscross design, it's used in alchemy. It's also used in other beliefs and cultures. Um, there's, you can go back to ancient primitive, what, what they considered primitive or what were labeled primitive. I think there were a lot of those groups that were labeled, labeled primitive were actually more advanced sometimes. But they had a, that a lot of them used the same symbols. Indra's net, for example, the the god Indra was said to have had a net that it really it resembles the veil template. It closely resembles it, and the center of each net, or the center of each uh, a rhombus design on the net, the net was covered with jewels, and every jewel on it reflected all the other jewels. So it there's a lot with that. Different cultures, different beliefs that also tie in with this. And and. Dan, since you know, writing this book, you went down all these different rabbit holes, you know, different types of cabalas, and uh, you know, looking at uh, you know, like Islamic holy places, you know, laying a little template over um, the structure of that uh, that mosque. Uh, you know, when you uh, uh, look back on your writing of th- this book, uh, Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure, um, you, know, you, you have a, a biography of your great-great-grandfather. What did you learn from this experience by putting all this stuff into a a book that has you know family stuff international intrigue and artwork how how did you grow from this experience oh, that's a good question and i'm still still wonder i i ask myself that a lot um, I know it's definitely, you know, it took years. It took 20 years of research and slowly piecing. Sometimes it would, it would, you know, clues would take forever to find, you know, answers to. And then other times it would flood in and then you, it would slow down and it'd take a while more digging, more digging. And, uh, but over the years, it has opened my mind a great deal towards a lot of different things, uh, little things that, used to bother me 
or upset me, you know, with like if you turn on the evening news, there's a million things that can upset people. I mm-hmm. they just they don't bother me anymore. It's caused it's forced me to look at a lot of things in the world on a much larger scale uh, in in terms of history, uh, well, a historical scale, and just knowing, you know, I'll, I'll say I drive downtown Austin, Texas, uh, I I'll notice designs in the architecture on buildings and i think huh you know it's there's a tie whoever knew whoever did that was may have been a freemason the architect and you know a lot of a lot of architects back in the day were freemasons and still are but uh it just you you know the meanings and stories behind just certain designs is little things and large things it's changed me in many ways that's uh, hopefully that made sense, but <laughs> it, it's a very eye-opening experience. When I first when I first started, for example, I thought, good, you know, I want to find my great great grandfather's treasure, and that mm-hmm. that would be great. And then it turned into I stumbled across probably one of the largest treasure mysteries in Western history, if not the world, and. The, the mindset that came along with all the research, it's too important for me. It's not mine. I don't, I don't want it. Uh, I, w- I would love to know the knowledge and what's behind, you know, I would love to know what's in each spot. That would be like a dream come true for me. But at the same time, um, it's not for me. It's for a bigger reason, a bigger plan. And it's not for one person. I believe it's for the world. And I think the Templar and the Freemasons are the guardians, are the, the caretakers of it. Uh, they're the ones who pre- – they, they originally acquired the treasures to preserve them, and that's what their job is. I think that's what their whole goal is. And over time, it, uh, as people are ready, it, more will be known. Hopefully it will happen in my lifetime. <laughs> okay, well – and you, and you, and you do say, uh, oh, okay. When we look at the paintings, okay, there's knowledge in the the artworks that you, know, uh, you discussed. You know, that's part of the treasure. Uh, you know, there's also uh, you know some points points you made um, in 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 the book about. You know, uh, when you lay these templates over certain areas, you, know, you use the seventeen uh, fifteen number, and you know, do, do some of the calculations there. Yeah, you know, where some of the um, treasure may be buried is on uh, public lands. Yeah. Uh, probably most of it, if it's you know, it wasn't dug up uh, by someone who knew where it was a long time ago, and, it, and it's it's gone. But you know, there might be some that's still remain. Uh, 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 seems like a lot of that is on private uh, property. Um, you know, we just don't 
aren't going to uh, ha- have access to it. You know, if you tell people what, you know why you're there, they're they aren't going to give yeah. you access. Uh, that's that's why we're working on yeah. set uh, on, on a Tuesday night. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. but yeah. It, 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 do you have like some kind of gut feeling that yeah hey yeah there might be a few uh, you know gold coins still in you know, a few mason jars. Yeah, in someone's backyard who has absolutely no idea that it, it, it's even there. Yeah, I do. I think there's a there's probably quite a few out there, especially the smaller ones. Um, I think there may be, I don't know, maybe you know several hundred at least. Uh, but as for the large ones, a lot of the large ones have been recovered. In my my, I believe a lot of them have been recovered. I know of several that were recovered. Um, there's, there may be more out there, uh, large ones. I think there are, but I think some of those would be more protected. Um, these days it would be easy. You just buy up the property around it or that it's located on and just keep people from, you know, entering the property. It'd be an easy way to protect it. Um, it's, it's, that's a good question. There's, I have a feeling there's a lot out there that's still, still there, but I do think a lot of it's uh, protected. Uh, I, I, that doesn't surprise surprise me. Uh, and, and I, and I it, it, it's just with the, the this uh, template that you've uh, spoken about throughout the evening. It, it uh, just seems like. Uh, someone knows where everything is. It's just not the time to get it. I think so. I think that's exactly right. Um, it was laid out. I always compare it to to if you laid out a city, a plan for a city, uh, you would create a grid system and then build your city based on that grid system so you'd know where mm-hmm. everything was. And the veil template is basically the same same thing, or it's very similar to that. That way, you know, because, you know, a lot of people go by, like, this old treasure map. Well, if the treasure map is even 100 years old, in some cases even less, you could bury a treasure, come back 50 years later, and the topography could look completely different. Floods, wind, erosion, all of that can completely change everything about the topography. So Building up a neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Developments, all sorts of things. So a lot of, you know, the grid system, which I call the veil template, makes perfect sense. Uh, that way, it doesn't matter how it changes. You know exactly where it's at going by the, the coordinates and the, you know, or the, in the older days, you know, the stars, their mapping systems, uh, they, they knew, ex- they would know exactly where it was. It, it, how um, is, Yeah, is your mom's trilogy similar to this, or is that more of a just straight biography? My mother's work was proving that Jesse James didn't die as history had stated, and 
her, she went a little into the treasures, but she she didn't go, get into the treasures. I mean, she she wanted to find the treasure too, but uh, she was more more concerned with proving Jesse James faked his death and died here in Texas at the age of ninety seven. Um, I I went more into the treasure side. I would help mom research, and then I would I would when I wasn't doing that, I was always researching the treasures and everything connected to it. But that said. My sister Teresa and I have uh, co-authored a book that's continuing our mother's work, which should come out, I believe, in 2020. I, I don't have a definite uh, release date yet, but it will be in my publisher's September catalog. Okay, and, and can, that can, you, just, can, can you use oh, a little preview? Yeah, well, it, it's more, basically a continuation of our mother's work uh it involves it involves forensics uh more forensic evidence the photograph that i mentioned earlier of jesse attending his own funeral which i always laugh when i say that because it sounds it sounds insane but it's actually true he is there standing next to his mother at his own funeral and it's you know it sounds insane on the surface but when you read when you know the stories, especially my mother's books, and we we uh, went over that in this new one just to keep everybody fresh on you know the story. Um, nobody knew what he looked like. He had a very small circle, small tight circle of honest, or like not uh, trusted friends, uh, people that he knew he could trust, and those were the few who knew what he looked like. So it on the surface it might sound crazy that he attended his own funeral. But nobody else could identify him. I mean, the law couldn't identify him the entire time they were after him. So <laughs> it's a, it's an amazing story. It is. Um, oh, and we we also have DNA evidence um, that we'll present in that book as well, and where we're at in. You know how we've progressed and where we're at right now. Yeah. What do you think? Have you seen the movie uh, Return of Frank James? I've seen a lot of them. I believe yeah, I'm pretty sure I've seen that one. I've seen most movies with Jesse James mentioned in them, and okay. listened to most of the songs with his name. <laughs> but. Yeah. Yeah. There's the. Uh, it, it, it's. A, a Fritz Lang movie. It, it uh, doesn't come to mind right now. The details okay, okay. of it. But. I, I, I was just wondering if um, you know, with uh, such a well-respected uh, director, and you know, not long after he came uh, to America, he, he makes this. Um, uh, Western movie. I I, I just uh, wondered if you had seen it and, and you wanted to provide a what what comment. year was that made? Uh, about nineteen thirty nine. Okay, that was one of the, old, the older black and white ones. I've probably seen it. I've seen a lot of them. We used to rent every Jesse James movie we could get our hands on. You know, when I was a kid, and we'd watch those. 
And even in my, even now, when, when I see one on TV or know of one or watch it online, it's just, I have fun watching them. A lot of them are, they're very entertaining. You know, some people get mad at Hollywood for throwing a story off. It's about entertainment. And if people are entertained, they will look into the history. And not in all cases, but a lot of cases, they'll mm-hmm. look into the history behind it. And that's what gets, you know, I don't have a problem with Hollywood, you know, taking liberties with stories. It, it, uh, it's always, inter- as long as it's entertaining, I'm happy. Uh, like uh, my favorite Jesse James movie is called The Long Riders, had the Carradine brothers in it. And that, that one was, the, that's my favorite Jesse James movie. Uh, it, it, it didn't go, it went by the accepted history. It didn't go by what I view as the truth, but at the same time, it was very entertaining. Okay. Uh, what did you think of the, the uh, uh, J- Joe Walsh and you know later the Tommy Bolin bands uh, <laughs> named themselves after your family? I always, I always liked that. Uh, just in, anything I can find on Jesse, you know, Songs, movies, it's always, I view it as a lot of fun. That's how my whole family, you know, it's just fun. Um, They're entertainers, and if it's entertaining, I have a good time. I don't have a problem with, with, you know, with it at all, so. Yeah, and, and I wasn't, oh, go go ahead. ahead. Uh, There's a few movies I didn't like. Uh, The most, one of the most recent movies uh, about Jesse, it just I didn't find it entertaining. Uh, I don't even know if I should mention that. So <laughs> I don't want to call, make okay. any, any enemies. But anyway, there's a few that I didn't like that if if, if they're not entertaining, I, if I don't find it entertaining, I'm like, yeah, you know, just change the channel and go watch the long riders. <laughs> OK, well, uh, um, you know, one, one of the uh, subjects uh, yeah, we really haven't touched on a whole uh, bunch. And, you know, we have like 13, 14 minutes left. Is uh, you know the the importance of uh, stars? You know, you mentioned it a few minutes ago, but uh, you know, a few, few times in your book, um, you have. Uh, uh, you know, work in uh, Venus and Vega, uh, you know, other celestial bodies like uh, uh, the Moon. Uh, you know, you're, you, know, you really do take a comprehensive look at all these different philosophies that go, go into understanding these templates. Yeah, it 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 gets very complicated and deep when i just writing the book i i had so much my desk was covered constantly with papers and notes and and you know all the different well the different cultures i mean there there was influences from from egypt uh ancient egypt uh alchemists jewish traditions druze and sufi you know islamic traditions um all these different beliefs, Celtic and Druid items. I mean, there were things that, you know, like dealing with the moon and numbers that tied in with the moon and, and the cycles of the moon. Um, there, there's so many different cultures 
that have had influence in this. It's almost like a, a global treasure. That's how I view it. It's, it's a world treasure. It happens to be in the Americas, but uh, I believe it belongs to the world and the Templar are their custodians of it. Okay. Do, do, do you uh, own the house in Blevins or you know, do, you, do you know where the property is? Like, it, you know, it, we, uh, what, where Jesse lived, he, he had had a house and then he, he had, he rebuilt the house, his home. I can't remember the date he rebuilt it, but you know, he, the, the house that was there, we offered to purchase it. There was an old farmer who owned the land and he, you know, he was all for it, but his one of his sons didn't like anything to do with it. Um, any, anything to do with us purchasing the house. And, uh, he, he just, it's, it's a long story, but he, we offered to purchase the house in one acre for a hundred thousand dollars, which was way over the market value. I mean, it was, it was, they would have got a great deal and we would have got what we wanted. Our, our goal was to preserve the home. And a few years after we had made the offer, he just tore the house down. Uh, after the old man, his father had passed away, the guy who owns it now just tore the house down. And I believe he was looking for treasure. Uh, there were treasures buried on that property, and I think he, I think they had found some. In fact, one of his relatives had told my mother about some treasures they had found, and I'd done a little research into that and found that um, it, it it appears that they probably did find some back in the '60s. Uh, but that, to make a long story short, yes, I know where the property is, and I wish he wouldn't have torn the house down. We we wanted to purchase it from him, but he he I guess thought there was treasure inside it, so he tore it to pe tore it to pieces, <laughs> which is a shame. It's a you know it's uh, it's uh, just to have uh, the house that Jesse lived in would have been a nice family heirloom, you know, to pass mm -hmm. down. So our our goals were were to make it into a museum, but uh, that 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 won't happen. Wait, do do you have uh? You know, we have about ten minutes left. Uh, do Do you have enough uh, uh, family heirlooms that you could open some some kind of museum or uh, have a a display in a you know your county museum? Yeah, we we've got quite a few heirlooms. Uh, I don't know it, if if we opened our own museum, it would be a small one, but there's enough for a small museum. Uh, well, the Mothman Museum's not all that big. <laughs> I haven't been to that one. Uh, he right now, as as of now, that's our our ultimate goal is to have it in a museum. That way, it could be protected. No one mm -hmm. could, you know, it would be protected, so it wouldn't be damaged or or destroyed or hidden away from from you know historians or anybody who wanted to, to, to you know anyone who had any interest in it could come and view it and it wouldn't be hidden away so there was i had one relative who she was an elderly lady and i don't judge her just because you know different generations have different values and beliefs she was ashamed that he was Jesse James uh just because 
you know, some people in history portrayed him as an outlaw and a criminal, and she didn't want anything to do with that. She burned over 200 of his letters. Wow. And, uh, yeah. That, I mean, that's, to me, in my opinion, that should be viewed almost as criminal. Uh, that's burning history. But she burned over 200 of his letters because she was ashamed of it and wanted to hide the family secret. So <laughs> that that was a little little that that that's the kind of thing that that'll get you a little mad. But uh, you know, I, I can't judge her for it. It was different belief, different culture, and she did what she thought was right. Although I think it was the, completely wrong. Uh, there's really nothing I can do with it, so it doesn't even help to get mad about it. It, uh, do you have any uh, uh, conference appearances coming up, anything of that sort? Or Right now, no. Um, I'm working on setting up a book signing soon, but uh, I've been so busy lately. And then last week I had the pneumonia, so it kind of set me back a little bit. Um, but now I'm better, I'm well, and um, I've got more shows, uh, interviews coming up. Um, but no, no lectures that I know of yet, or book. I've, you know, I'm working on a book signing, but I don't have a definite date right now. Okay. I, uh, yeah, you're doing uh, well with the interviews. I mean, you're on uh, Midnight in the Desert re- recently, and uh, Richard's show. Yeah. Uh, last week, or he, he he at least posted it last week. Yeah, so I was he, on. You are getting the word out, and you know, Inner Traditions does a really nice job of. Um, oh, they do helping helping people to get connected to hosts. They are a very good publisher. Um, I I didn't expect half of what you know. They they do a lot of work, and they are very friendly and easy to work with, and they 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 have made this entire process a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So and yeah, and working with uh, well different groups like I had fun, I have fun on all the interviews. I've had a lot of fun on this interview. Um, Lost Origins, Ancient Origins, Midnight in the Desert, Richard Surrett. I believe I pronounced his last name correctly. And I've got others lined up. Uh, the Supernatural Girls, Paranormal, and others. But um, I I don't. I've got a lot of interviews and. I need to set up a book signing. I just haven't had the time lately. <laughs> no, it need... so, sounds like it'd uh, be a really good uh, idea. Uh, yeah, that's you know really helps to get um, uh, people interested in your book. Is actually you know getting to shake your hand and you know, doing a meet and greet type thing. Yeah, you know, just being able to look you in the eye and ask you. Uh, uh, questions, and you know yeah. that's uh, that's. Uh, I hope you can do that. It, it's you know uh, very effective way of uh, you know uh, really connecting with your audience. That's true, and I, I had been to a couple of uh, book signings with my mother when she had several of her books, but mm-hmm. um, and that's why I, the one I'm working on setting up is the same one that she had her first book signing in. And that's the one I want my first book signing in at Barnes and Noble. So uh, hopefully, hopefully that'll work. And there's a lot of other book signings I need to set up. I need to get to work on that right away, uh, just setting up book signings in different areas. 
Okay, and uh, uh, you know we're uh, down to just a, a few few more minutes. Uh, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to? One of the main the main uh, points, you know, you see on if if you research Freemasonry or the Templar on online, especially online, uh, you find a lot of a lot of negative websites concerning Freemasonry and the Templar. Not, you know, there, there's a lot of good sites, but there's also some negative ones. And I just wanted to point point out, uh, I don't understand the negative the negative viewpoints on Freemasonry. I don't agree with them. I've read through some of them. The Freemasons, I believe, are, if it weren't for the Freemasons and the Templar and the alchemists and other groups who are tied in with these treasures, um, and so much more, it, we wouldn't have an America today. Uh, I think they're the reason we have America and our freedoms and liberties. And it, they've played, and it's, I think we, I think all all Americans owe them a huge debt of grat. You know, just I, I, they they were amazing people. They still are. They're good people, and they've done a lot for the world. So I, I just wanted to get that out there. Okay. And a okay. lot of the ne- a lot of the negative things you see, like you know, you'll see people uh, mention Albert Pike in a negative light. Um, I think those were taken. A lot of the people who do that either they're not at the right level to understand what he's talking about, or they they may have some other goal. I don't know, but they take a lot of their words out of context and then spin that as you know as their platform. And I, I think that's that's a shame people do that. Everybody's free to have to their own opinion. But I do I believe, in my opinion, the Freemasons and Templars are my heroes. Uh, they were I think they were a great organization, and we wouldn't be here without them, or at least the country wouldn't be. Okay. Well, uh, you know, so, so some of our guests uh, like Rob uh, Sullivan and Scott Walter, Bill Mann would. Agree with you, so, and yeah. So, uh, you know, people can go to innertraditions.com and order the book. And, and, and after we wrap up in a, a minute or so, but um, yeah, next week uh, Tim Schwartz is going to be uh, returning to talk about Admiral Byrd. On Monday, and we'll be covering uh, some Twilight Zone and the Shadow Radio Show with uh, Martin Grams. Uh, you know, the rest of the month has a lot of uh, real s- special uh, guests. So, uh, Dan, I want to thank you for being a terrific guest tonight, and um, you know, Barbara. Uh, do you have any concluding remarks, and you know we can wrap wrap up for the evening? 